Now take your Bibles, please, and open them at this stage at Luke and chapter 2, from whence our readings will be taken this morning. Please keep in mind, overall subject is that we are looking at God's program for Satan And we are exploring that in a fairly wide way so that we can have a proper understanding and a bigger understanding of Revelation chapter 20 where God moves very distinctly and finally destroys Satan and all of his deeds and all of his influence. And we noticed in Genesis 3, that was where the bare bones there, the promises of God regarding Satan when he first introduced sin into the world. He told Satan, your time's limited, you will ultimately be destroyed, and between those points from now and your destruction, you will always face opposition. We saw that the very woman herself, who he had used to bring sin into the world by deceiving her, she hated Satan, and her son Abel started the line whereby there was always opposition to the work of Satan. Then last week, then we followed it through the Old Testament in general and saw how God had that overarching control of Satan's ways and how there were always his people resisting what he was doing in the world. And finally, last week, we looked at the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation. <clears throat> there was like a major change in the ways of God's program. It was like Prior to that, he had stood back and sort of managed affairs and not let Satan go too far at different times. But now, as it were, instead of defending his, his purposes and his plans, he moved into attack. That was the incarnation. It was God taking the offensive. And in Christ, the incarnate Christ, moving into Satan's territory, because he now has in mind dealing with Satan himself and the Son of God was manifested that he might undo or destroy the works of the devil. And this is the beginning of that great offensive. Satan knew it. He never wanted that child to be born. We saw that. He hated the notion of it. He would have stopped God's plan at that very point if he could have. But of course, it never, never happened. And ultimately the Lord Jesus is born at exactly the time God said he would be born. He was born in the exact place, in the exact manner, as God had predicted hundreds of years through the prophets before. And what is not happening now is that God is moving and he is going to undo the works of the devil and finally destroy him. Now look, I think in today's world we need to focus a little bit on an understanding of this. We need to understand that God has a plan in dealing with Satan and it is currently in action. It was given to us in promise in Genesis 3. We've seen it in some pictures right throughout the Old Testament. And then it comes in its person in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God moved in Christ, the outcome was certain victory. And fellow Christians today, whatever goes on in this world around us, understand this, that God is on the throne... He has made his plans and the outcome will be certain and final and total victory and nothing less. We need to get an understanding and get our eyes in the right place and get our eyes fixed upon God and his plan for the dealing with evil rather than perhaps use all our time and emphasis focused on finding out what the devil's doing, you know, and you can easily do that. 
But whilst we should not be ignorant of his devices or the methods that he uses to work with, don't get taken up with everything he's doing. Because as sure as eggs, you'll be looking at the wrong person. You'll be looking at the devil and he'll get you down. And you'll think you're going to get overwhelmed and that things are out of control and God has not got his hand on anything. Whereas if you look above and you look at God and you look at his word and you look at the risen, exalted and glorified Christ, you will understand. You will understand God is on the throne and he will remember his own. And he is dealing in, with ultimate, and will deal ultimately with that which is evil, even with the devil himself. And we need that. We need to grasp that in today's world because we're moving into difficult times lie ahead of us as a country. They do most certainly. Things are more and more now in control of people who are not just, and they are anti-God, totally anti-God. It's not just that they're ignoring God, they hate him. They're anti-Christian. They're aggressive. They're militant. They're attacking. They're determined to stamp out the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to see to him that people don't see to it that people don't follow him and those that are following him are ultimately nullified at least if not destroyed. And you say, well, why would God allow this? Understand he is still on the throne, working out all things after the counsel of his own work, if it his own will. And it is true that things are going down the sluice very quickly in the Western world. You only need to get better acquainted with what's going on in a universal way. See what's happening in Great Britain and the reversals of morality and standards and the fall at rate of which they're falling. Go and look at what's going on in Canada. Read what's happening now in New Zealand. Look at our own new educational system and the new programs that have come out and the emphases that are there. See what's happening in the United States. and You see a nation, deliberate nation after nation in the West, turning their backs upon God, not ignorantly, but deliberately. And maybe it is God in his own way, for he's a righteous God, it could well, well be that we in the West are facing very difficult times because Western world is coming under the judgment of God. Now remember, he does do that. He has always done that. And I can't help but agree with what was said by the, the minister in the St. Thomas's Church in Sydney, which is an evangelical, large evangelical Anglican church on the North Shore. And he said, if God does not judge the West then he may well have to apologise to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now think about that, fellow Christian, because if you understand history, and if you follow history, you'll see God has moved that way. Man says, I don't want you. Man says, I hate you and I won't have you. And God waits in grace and he moves in mercy and he sends the message of the gospel to bring blessing and liberty and salvation and they reject and reject and reject. There comes times in history when God has said, Man will have what they've chosen for the time. Please, it's only ever for the time. That's the teaching of Scripture. For a period of time, the nation faces what they chose. They choose evil, you'll be ruled by evil. You worship Satan, you worship self, you worship sin, you'll be ruled by Satan, ruled by self, dominated by sin. 
But in the midst of it all, the challenge and the responsibility, the emphasis for us today is not looking at Satan and looking at all the wrong that's going on and getting into an absolute flap about it or thinking we can actually do different things to change it because when God moves, you can't change anything. And if he does lift that restraint and allow evil to come for a time, what can we do? We must learn to live in our present world as the light of the world. Learn to live as those who are holding forth the message of salvation. Learn to live as those who are God's people and not be ashamed of the gospel. And not be ashamed of the cross. And not be ashamed of the God who has saved us by his grace. And how should we then live is very much the thing that must be occupying us. As Francis Schaeffer, he wrote that lovely book, didn't he? How should we then live? Look at the world and what it is. Face the reality of the society in which we live. Understand the times and what's going on. And then say, how should I then live? Right. Now, we go back from that background. And this is why we are looking carefully at the activities of God in his program for the undoing of evil and for the destroying of Satan himself ultimately in that day, which may well be not too far ahead. And thank God for that day when Christ comes and he establishes a reign of righteousness and justice and he puts away sin once and for all and he redeems us to the blessedness of heaven and of home and the harmony of a world of righteousness where there's no sin and the glory of God lightens it up. Some lovely things ahead for the believer. Fellow Christian, we're going, as it were, on a journey and we're in an enemy's land, but up ahead is certain victory. Now, we looked at the incarnation, and I was then going to move to the public ministry of the Lord Jesus, but I'm not going to do that, because I'm clearly meant not meant to. I'm going to actually look at each period in the life of the Lord Jesus. And the next period, after his birth and coming into the world, is that period of time from when he was a babe, right, up until the time of the age of 30. At the age of 30, when he is baptised publicly by John, he then moves out in public ministry to perform the mission for which he is being sent, to actually live in a dreadful, godless, pagan, sinful world, to live there as the light of the world, and to move through the dark scenes of sin and misery and brokenness, in all the power and majesty of the servant of God, delivering by bringing in the light, and finally by making a sacrifice for sin forever and breaking the power of death, and in the glorious ascension, finally breaking the power of Satan himself. So we're going to look at the age of the Lord Jesus and what went on there by way of preparation of the Lord Jesus for the great mission which he would undertake and move out in public at around the age of 30 and start to speak for God as God in a world that's rejected God, yet the world that is God's. And he would tell them the message of life and salvation and demonstrate the power of God in the healing of the sick, in the casting out of the demons, 
in the rebuking of sin, in the confronting of Satan, and in the declaration that he had come as the king the, into the kingdom of darkness, bringing all the authority of the kingdom of heaven, and that he was the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was the divine invader into this world of sin and darkness. And well might Satan marshal his forces in fear of being defeated, but it matters not at all, for the Christ of God will move right through in power and mighty dignity, fulfilling the work for which he had come to do, and finally making a sacrifice for sin forever, and destroying and undoing the works of the devil. That's the picture we're getting. Now this, these years, the first 30 years of the Lord Jesus, are regarded very largely as um, <clears throat> you know, being the, the seers of silence. You know, we don't know much about them. Well, I don't know. I used to think that the silent years, the 30 years when we're not told much about him. I'm going to show you we're told a lot and it's very beautiful. That's why we're in Luke chapter 2, please. All right? You go to verse 39. <clears throat> Just reading it through, it'll come to life. And picture the thing as I'm reading it, please. There's, there's some lovely things. Do you remember, for instance, in, in, in Luke chapter 2, in the Incarnation, when we read it, she brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes. She laid him in a manger. Just read that slowly. And in your mind you picture the whole happening. And you're left with that lovely, lovely picture of Mary. The picture of true motherhood. Womanhood at its highest and its noblest. And she's just stooped, as it were, over the babe, laying him into that crib. And on her face there's all the glow and love of motherhood. The feelings that only a mother can have towards that babe of hers that has just been born. And it's as though Luke would paint a picture for us. You see, in John, we saw visions, and we learned that it was a picture book. Luke, actually, is also a picture book, but let me explain that. Luke is a historian, right? He writes history, and secular historians will tell you that his gospel and the Acts of the Apostles are incredibly accurate in their relating and recording of events and timings, etc. He's a brilliant historian. But he's not just a, a, an academic, stuffy sort of person that remembers facts. He's also a Greek writer, you see? Now, a Greek is a person who loves form, and they love beauty, they, they love perfection. You remember all their sculptings, you remember all their thinking, they love to use words properly. They love to, they were perf, they love perfection and form and beauty and artistry. And, and Luke, when he writes, he paints pictures all the way through as he writes. And you'll find that as we, you can just see Simeon, the old man in the temple with a babe in his arms, lifted up to heaven, you know. Lord, lay thou lettest thy servant go, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. You can see the radiance on his face portrayed in the words. Now, he is, he's an artist. He makes a picture out of words. You won't find that with John. You won't find it with Matthew. You certainly won't find it in Mark. It's the style. It's the particular thing that was in that person that God uses to tell the story of the gospel. 
Alright, so sorry for the interruption. But this is all instructive. It'll help you to read it and it'll come to life for you. Look what it says. Verse 39 of Luke chapter 2. When they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee. This is Mary and Joseph and the babe to their own city of Nazareth. Now, the Lord Jesus there was just 40 days old, all right? Just six, just under six weeks. So we're looking at the period from there up until where it says in verse 23, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. So that's the period of time. Now, look what happened in this period as they returned home. (coughs) The child grew... And he became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I think that's the most beautiful picture, the most beautiful description of what true, normal, God-intended childhood is. The child is growing, the natural, normal, physical growth. He is becoming strong in spirit, developing emotionally and mentally and intellectually filled with wisdom and spiritually the grace of God was upon him. Now you should be able to look at children growing up in Christian homes and you say, look at them. There's something beautiful about them. They're happy in their relationships. They're developing in their physical structure and their minds are becoming enlightened in that which is good and makes them wiser as they're growing older. And God is blessing them because, you know, God always wants to bless children. Do you realise that? The importance of children in the plans of God. Please, I must not go and get diverted all over again and tell you all about that. But I agree with Dr. Campbell Morgan when he says one of the great proofs of inspiration of Scripture is what the Bible makes of its children. Right? God loves children. Lord Jesus loves children. Every true Christian man or woman loves children. The hallmark of a satanic society, they hate children. They'll kill them before they're born. In Roman society, they cheerfully killed them after they were born if they were not wanted, particularly if it was a girl that they didn't want to have the burden of bringing up. So it could go on. Right, there's the first thing. Now when his parents went to Jerusalem, verse 41, they went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old. There it is, that's the next time. That's the next age group we get. They went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. When they had fulfilled the days, this is at the feast, as they returned... The child. Now that's not the little child. Verse 40, it's the child grew. That's a word for little child. This is more the word that relates to a boy. Right? It's past just being a little child. The child Jesus, the boy Jesus, tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey. They sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. They found him not. They came back to Jerusalem, seeking him. Came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, or the teachers, both hearing them, asking them questions. 
get the picture, can't you? There's the Lord Jesus. He's just 12 now. He's growing as a true human being because he became truly human as well as being totally and completely God. He is there and he is as a 12-year-old sitting and around him are all the teachers in the temple, the important people in their faith. And he's asking them questions. They're listening to his answers as they ask him questions. And they are astonished at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were amazed. His mother said to him, Son, now you see, it's not the word, the word child for a little, little one. It's not the word even child, meaning boy. The word that's used there and the, the phrase, the expression of it, is the idea of, ah, oh, my own son, my own child. There's a certain relief that she's found him. There's a, there's a, a connection between the two that's, this is my, my own son, you know. My own bairn is the idea in the Scottish language. My own bairn. And what you've got here is, why hast thou dealt with us? Behold thy sorrow, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Now, just let me comment in passing here. There's lots of sermons preached on that section of scripture. And it's all about going three days journey and without the Lord's company and what a terrible thing to do and how careless we can get in our lives and journeying on and leaving the Lord behind. Let's be a little bit sensible here. That's not the context. They went a day's journey, right, without him. You say, well, how could anybody do that? Well, quite easily. He was 12. They had total faith in him. He was not the child that wandered off. He was not the child that rebelled, all right? And so they were quite comfortable that he was amongst the big company of Jewish people who were travelling back after having been there, up there for the feast. And then they found after a day he wasn't there. Okay, so they spent a day looking amongst all the people for him. And then they had to take another day to journey back to him. Well, he must be left back behind there somewhere. There's your three days, by the way. There's your three days. And when they came back, they found him. We'll open up a little bit more. But that's really what happened. A perfectly reasonable situation, as we will discover. And look, if they found him, and he says to them, How is it that you sought me? Wished ye not, didn't you know? that I must be about my father's business. They really understood not the saying which he spoke to them. Now he's 12 years of age. He went down with them. And he came to Nazareth where, and he was subject to them. You understand? See the respect for his parents? You need to teach this in today's world. Respect for the parents. He was subject to them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Now what happened after that? We know age 12, the Lord Jesus is showing that respect for his parents um, according to this world standards, as it were. His mother, yes, his father, <coughs> the supposed father, earthly one, not the real one. And what happened in that period of time? His subject, yes. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and with man. That Again, we'll touch that in a minute. That's a beautiful description of how the individual is meant to grow, alright? And so you've got this story of the Lord Jesus in these years 
and it's divided by the reference to the fact that at the age of 12. At the age of 12 in Jewish culture, somewhere around 12, somewhere around 13, and I want to say spiritually there's a very great truth in this too. At the age of 12 or 13, the Jewish child, the Jewish boy especially, would take, go through a ceremony called Bar Mitzvah, right? And in that ceremony, basically, it was uh, very important because that child then was stating and held accountable, stating the fact that they were going to take responsibility for their own spiritual development. They became a child of the commandment or a child of the law. And as such, they were to work out and take responsibility for their faith and their attitude to the whole of the teachings of the Old Testament and to the teachings of the Torah at that particular time. And they were regarded as become adult in that capacity and that means they were taking responsibility for themselves. Before that, the parent was held completely responsible for the building up, the education, the development and the spiritual instruction right, of that person, a child. Now what you've got here is exactly that turning point in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the whole story we've read, we've got a picture of parents, firstly, Mary and Joseph, and then of the Lord Jesus, secondly, before the age of 12 and after the age of 12. And in this reading here, there's incredible instruction for parents like Mary and Joseph. And there's remarkable instruction for children age 12, as it were, reaching that adolescent situation where the child is not quite a child anymore, nor are they quite grown anymore. So how do they behave, and how do, what attitude do they take? You can do no better than follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. No better at all. It has to be a perfect example, which is timeless in its principles, okay? And what we're going to find out is what we've read about just now is not something that's historical and in the past and unrelated to us and our world. Not at all. It's not remote history. It's incredible, incredibly descriptive and applicable and gives us principles that mean and mean to be followed by us today. Right. Think for a minute. Think for a minute of the world in which the Lord Jesus grew up. Just think about it. Think for a minute about... The world in which Mary and Joseph had to bring up a family. What was it? I mean, it was absolutely pagan. It was totally depraved. It was spiritually bankrupt. Within its whole philosophy and atmosphere, there was no recognition of the true creator God. Morally, marriage was... I don't want to go into it because it's not even decent what marriage was held in in those days. It was anything, relationships, anything and anyone and anyhow and anywhere. Pardon me. Gender issues, absolutely blighted and corrupted. Temple worship, frankly, downright filthy. And that was their religion. Polytheism, there were many gods to choose from, and when you didn't have what you wanted, well, you found another god you liked better. What was the social situation, social justice in the world that people cry out about today? And many Christians are really worked up about it, as though it's something new in the 21st century, you know? It's crazy. What did you have for social justice? You had two groups in society. You had the Romans, and after that, you know who else you had? You had the barbarians. The Romans called them the barbarians, right? I don't have to describe what that means, but you can imagine 
they looked down upon anybody who wasn't of themselves. And they had special, of course, discrimination. Goodness me, there was a rule for a Roman and a rule for a barbarian. And there was certainly another rule for the Jew, right? Total discrimination. And there was true slavery. You know, a master could do what he liked with his slave. He could kill him just for, because he's angry, just because he wanted to. There's all sorts of dreadful stories you can read, you know, where there was two great nobles and they had a great party together. I won't give you their names or their places, it doesn't matter, but just the print, they had a party together and they were talking away about killing, you know? And one said to the other, do you mean to tell me you've never seen a slave die? And that man says, oh, no, I haven't. So he called two slaves and he said to one, fall on that fellow and kill him. Now, he did it. The man, the slave, the slave number two did it to slave number one. There was no questioning. No, oh, but sir, no, it was done. That was the life of a slave. Sold out to another. That was the kind of social justice that existed. Poverty, the distribution of wealth. Always worried about the richer getting richer and the poorer getting poorer. You go live in the days of the Bible times and see what poverty was. See the beggars with their bowls. See them dying by the streets. See them with their disease not getting any attention. See the poor old leper and how they lived. You see Dives, is it word, wasn't it? In Luke 16, at the gate of the rich man, covered in sores, and the dogs are licking his wounds, and he, he couldn't even get a crumb, as it were, from the rich man's table, is the picture you get there. When it comes to family issues, we, we grieve, we grieve, we are angry at what is done to children. We are angry that they would be destroyed, that motherhood is defined by current leaders in the terms of the fact that a woman, womanhood is defined as having the right of being able to destroy your own child. That's basically where we're at. Well, in those days it was very similar, and it was true to say that by the age of six weeks, if a child was born in a home, if it was a slave's child, or if it was a wife's child, or however many they had, or whatever else, proselytes and so on. And sorry, um, the word escapes me, it doesn't matter. But whoever child it was in that home, right, they would bring it into the master of the house at the age of six weeks, and he would sort of look at it and decide whether he wanted it kept. If he didn't want it kept, what would they do? What they do? One of two things to that child. Either it was left on the doorstep or taken up to the temple of a female to be used in temple worship and all the vile things that went on, or just exposed out in the desert and left to die. This is literally what went on in this society, and this is the kind of society that Mary and Joseph had to bring up their family, and they did it well because they had more sons. And remember, James was one of the brothers of the Lord Jesus who wrote James's epistle, you see. You see what I mean? It's very, it's very remarkable. And not only that, you say, well, you know, they had the culture of Israel as a buffer against all this other pagan thing that was round about them. Well, well, just wait a minute. The spiritual tone in Israel was so low that the nation rejected their Messiah and they actually crucified their own king and saviour, Jesus Christ. You can't get more spiritually defunct than that, can you? Do you understand that? So that, do you understand that the the task confronting these parents, the world they brought him up in, look what it was. Do you know what they did? They brought him up for God. They took responsibility for their children. They did not have the advantages that you'd like to have, that we're all coveting today, that we've had actually ourselves in the last 40 years or so, and we're seeing them being eroded and taking from us, and we're throwing up our hands in anger, so we should. 
We're opposing it and we scream against it and so we should. But don't be surprised if it is taken from us. We don't despair. I'm learning a lesson from the environment in which Mary, Joseph raised their family. They didn't have the wealth. They didn't have good government. They didn't even have a Christian sympathetic leader. As a matter of fact, they didn't even have a good church to go to. Did you know that? See, we're talking about all the things we use as props, don't we, for the bringing up of our families and for the maintenance of our own faith. You say, surely they, they had the temple to go to and they had the synagogue to go to. So hold it a minute. What did the Lord Jesus say about the temple? He says it's meant to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. What did he do in the temple? He took a whip and he overturned the tables of the money changers, the commercialites who were making a fortune. And it was led by the Pharisees, the whole of their religion. And what were they? Whitewashed sepulchres, says the Lord Jesus. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You bind burdens and you put them on the people, but you don't lift one finger to help yourself. You say one thing as you chant your prayers in your big robes and you stand on the street corners and you go out there to give a few arms and you blow a little whistle so that everybody can see you doing it. But he said, inside you are full of corruption. And you've got empty ritual, you've got hypocrisy, you've got outward show. You've got commerce, money, politics, greed, double standards. They didn't have, as it were, a decent church to take them to. Think it through. Think it through today. And part of me, stop grizzling. <laughs> no, I'm not saying it to you. I'm saying it to us all. Let's get things in their right perspective. In the world, we will have tribulation. The pathway of the true Christian is not an easy pathway, but we have the power of God who is able to keep us and strengthen us and guide us and bring us through. And just as this, these two people, Mary and Joseph, raised their family for God, right? So also the challenge is exactly the same and God is still the same to us today. So what happened as we saw in verse 40? How did this babe grow in this environment? It says there that he grew, in, he grew, he waxed strong in spirit and he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And I want you to notice that under the care of Mary and the supposed father, Joseph, and I'll just use that, don't want to go into that, you understand what I mean. The Lord Jesus, as he grew, his physical, mental, spiritual needs, they were all met. That's huge. Because that's the rearing of a child today. There's physical needs, there's mental needs, right? There is the spiritual need. There's the emotional, the physical, the mental, the spiritual. Look at our children in the world today. I work in the real world. And it's time sometimes you've got to get out of your glass case and work in the real world. And see children who are twisted mentally, in anguish emotionally, bereft spiritually, totally unequipped to live in the world into which they have been born. In the midst of this, we have this beautiful picture of one who is developing and growing and living in the fullness of the grace of God. Fellow Christian here with families, bring your children up like that and God will honour what you are doing despite the powers of evil opposed and forces that are against you. 
As sure as God is God, he is true to his word. It's incredible to just stand back and see this unfolding in our very eyes from two thousand years ago and you say oh yes but obviously they had a pretty perfect marriage and didn't have too many people attacking oh, come on how many people at the time in the day actually believed Mary's story about the virgin birth you say well they all did I beg your pardon she lived with rumours she was a mother who conquered lies she lived with character assassination. They flung at the Lord Jesus later. We be not born of fornication. You see the harsh realities of life. This is not glass case theology. This is reality where the rubber hits the road. We're living in a real world. We're living in a world of sin. We're living in a world of evil. You know, we're living in a world where every Christian will get accused and abused of what they did or did not do. And in the midst of it all, the child grows. Child grows in wisdom and stature. And the point is this that when it comes to Christian parenting, and it's here in the chapter, and I'm burdened to say it, take responsibility for your children. Take responsibility. No, the point is this you are the ones that are responsible. The school doesn't bring your children up. Please God and don't let it with the new education syllabus. It's absolutely ghastly. And you will have to desperately teach what is right to counter what is wrong. Do you realise that's how you deal with what is wrong? You absorb yourself, saturate yourself with what is right. You can spend all your life talking about the wrongs. Careful, major on the right. You can spend all your time worried about Satan's programme. Careful, get God's programme. You'll end up looking down instead of looking up. And what does the old poet said? Two men looked out through prison bars and the one saw mud and the other saw stars. That's it, you see. Looking in the wrong direction, looking at the wrong one. So keep your eyes in the right place. One, you take responsibility. Two, you teach them. Now that is very, very important to teach them. And please understand that much of that is in the Father's hands. Did you know that in Ephesians chapter 4, is it 5? You know, you, you bring your child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ye fathers do that. Nurture, you are feeding, you are seeing that they are developing mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. <clears throat> and so you teach them yourself, and you teach them, and you use three principles in teaching in the family. You teach one by precept, two by example, Three, by explanation. What do I mean by all that? You teach by precept. You are teaching God's word, God's law. You know, they used to teach catechism. Not a bad idea at all. Standard sayings about the truths of God. You teach the word of God. Certainly not a bad idea at all. Both of them excellent ideas. There is precept. You are setting down before them the law of the Lord. Absolute truth is what you're bringing to bear and making it clear in a world where there is no truth, where there is false truth, where people now decide what is truth. Indeed, Mr. Biden actually set up a new ministry in America. It's called the Ministry of Truth. And he took the most woke lady he could find with the most perverted ideas and put her in charge so she'll tick off what's truth. And when you find out what's truth, apparently, then you're allowed to publish it in the media. I mean, what? 
are we coming to? But that's where we're at, you see. So you teach by precept because you want truth. But I tell you what, you better preach by example because all your talk will mean nothing if you don't live it yourself. The most powerful witness in a Christian home is that parent or parents who live by their faith. Now, some of us are a lot older. Can you remember your parents? If you had Christian parents, you're very blessed. Can you remember one or both? You had to say they lived what they said. And it stayed with you, didn't it? Eh? How many people have been won by the faith of their mothers donkeys years later? John Newton with that little Bible tucked into his pillow, into his packing case, eh? Came from his mother, didn't it? Eh? And I remember a great preacher who was the youngest of 17 children, right? 17 boys, he was the youngest of 17. And he always remember every night before they went to bed, she'd line them all up against the wall, he said. <laughs> one by one, she'd go down the lot. Finally, she'd get to the last one, little Willie. And she'd say, Lord, bless little Willie and make him a man of God someday. Well, she died when little Willie was 12. Little Willie rebelled and he went into made a mess of his life as an alcoholic and one day God put his hand on him and little Willie became a great preacher of the gospel. Some of you may know Willie Mullen of Ireland. That's a true story without its accoutrements as it were or any, any um, uh, <coughs> ribbons put on it. That's ex excuse me, exactly what happens. That woman taught, as it were, by example and then by explanation. You answer the children's whys. Why, why, why? You don't just teach them something that has, seems to have no relevance to the present world in which we live. Fellow Christians, too many of us have absorbed lots of doctrines about things, but we never really saw their relevance to our daily life. It breeds a churchianity, not a Christianity. It breeds a Sunday experience and a Monday difference, you see. Your faith invades every part of your life and completely transforms how you think. Therefore, transforms how you behave because it transforms how you think so it transforms how you speak and what you say now that's true Christianity that's living as a Christian and you'll find in the home it's the most powerful thing when the parent lives their faith and they give the child answers from the scriptures as to why 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 it's not just the sense that you know well, uh, you've got to do it because I said so. No, you, you're teaching them you've got to do it because God said so and this is where he said it. You know, it's very good when they come and ask their questions. You say, oh dear me, we better go and get the Bible and see what God says about it, you see. Because that'll stay in their minds a lot better than your opinion ever will or ever did. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I will read it to you, listen to the words. Because you'll never do better than getting this in your mind. He says, these are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you. In other words, these are the precepts that you might do them in the land where you go. You might do them, he says, firstly. And he's talking to those responsible adults. And he says, you might fear the Lord, keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you. Then he says, you and your son and your son's son all the days of your life, that your days might be prolonged. Right? See, that's coming down the line. But as you first learn them, you first do them, 
Then you teach them to the generation below. And you, us geriatrics, and there's a whole bunch of us here, teach them to your grandchildren and to your great-grandchildren. That's why you're left here. I don't know why the Lord leaves me here so long when I want to go to heaven. You're here to work for God in your family and have an influence down the line. No matter what departure or what troubles there are, that's why you're here. One of the major reasons why you're here. You're to not only teach the precepts, you at your age of 70, 80, 90, should be a powerful witness for what God can do in a life that lives for him. And you're living still by the word of God, by your faith in God, by your trust in God. You don't think that'll affect your children? Your children's children and your children's children's children? It will. It'll go right down the line. And that's the point of the teaching of the, these words in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And you shall teach them diligently to thy children. You will talk of them when you sit in your house. No, no, not at special little times when you go to church or when you say your prayers. It's a constant point of conversation. It's always referring back to the things of God. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you'll bind them as a sign upon your hand. They'll be as frontless between your eyes. They'll make you look in the right direction. You'll write them upon the posts of your house and upon your gate so everybody knows that in this home there is a Christian family. There is the light of God, not just because I wrote it down, because I'm living it inside that closed door. And it'll shine like a light out the window, if you get what I mean. It's a bit like, and I love to think of it, you remember when Israel <coughs> was in bondage in the land of Egypt? You remember that? And there came a time when there was darkness over all the land. It was a darkness that could be felt. It was a darkness that portrayed the absence of the blessing of God on that nation of Egypt. Can you imagine them groping, just groping in the dark, and thinking, oh, this is dreadful, there's no there's sun, there's no moon, there's no stars... It was a darkness that was so intense you could, you could feel it. And I, I just imagine two, two Egyptians walking along, stumbling over their feet. And one says, there, hey, wait a minute. Look over there. Look up there on the hill. Look, look. There's a light. A light? Dark, a light? What, what are they doing having light over there? The other one says, oh, that's one of those children of Israel. That's one of God's people. They've got light in all their dwellings. You see that? Light in all they're doing. That's the home. That's what we're here for, fellow believers. Firstly, as individuals, to shine the light. And then in the family home circle, to shine the light. And then to pass it down through the generations. What are we doing? We are shining the light. That's Deuteronomy. So, one, take responsibility. Two, teach them. Three, realize where children come from. You say, what do you mean? The Bible says... They are the heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is his reward. That's what it says. I have to say that today to focus in the right direction because we live in a day of children by choice. I got my children because I wanted them. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Where did you get your child from? You got it ultimately from the Lord. He's the giver of life. Right? And I tell you something, and I don't believe, and I, I do not believe for one minute that God gives, gives us children to see them lost. I'm sorry, I can't buy that. Have I agonised over my children? Yes. Have my wife and I wept over our children? Yes. Have we been absolutely amazed in years gone by, overwhelmed by the sense of what to do? 
you know, Manoah and his wife, when the child was born, Lord, they said, teach us what to do with this child. It's too much for us. We cannot see the way clear. But the truth is, I never lost that sense that if I could bring them up for God, then God will do his part and move in blessing. And they that honour me, I will honour. So keep that kind of thinking in your mind. If a child is given to you as a Christian person, it's part of God's working providentially in the moving of bringing a child into the light from the moment it was born. He doesn't wish to see it go out into the darkness. And we have got that responsibility. Right. That's the child, the parent's responsibility, as portrayed here in the real world in which they lived and the way in which they did it. And it's exactly the same for us today, for we're heading to the same kind of world. Now the child reaches the age of 12 and in verse 42 onwards. What actually goes on? Remember we talked about the, the change in Jewish culture, the becoming responsible, the bar mitzvah, the, whereby the child then started to be interested in their own faith and take responsibility for their own growth, right? Now that's exactly it. What you see first of all is the Lord Jesus you see is in the temple. And he's going through, as it were, we'll call it the catechism, and he's asking questions. And the people there, the, the doctors of the law, and the, the, the leaders of the place, they're astounded at what he knows. Who taught him that? First 12 years of parental guidance. Get that? Or oh, don't you feel terrible sometimes? You feel you, you've not done your job properly. You certainly do. But he was actually demonstrating what the upbringing that he had. That's the first thing. The second thing is, what do you say he's there and they don't even know? Well, well yeah. <coughs> he's serious about his commitment to the things of the Lord. That's what he is. Absolutely serious about it. At this stage in life when you're no longer a child and you're moving on to something more. And it's time you sat down and said, I have to make myself responsible for my own spiritual growth. It's not just relying on everything else. It's you now starting to grow. And what the Lord did, he committed himself to the things of God to have an understanding of his faith. That's why he was in the temple. You get it? And he said to them, well, did you not understand that no, I'm at this point in my life where I am taking some responsibility and moving in to the things of God. Indeed, he said something even incredible about more than that. He said, ought I not to be about my father's business? Not only is he committing himself to the understanding of the word and of the things of God as a young 12-year-old and around that age, but he's committing himself to the service of God. And I just want to say to the young people that are here, if you don't somewhere early in your life, early in your life, early today in your teens, very early, maybe before that, if you don't make a solid, serious commitment to know God, to know his word, and to serve him, you may well be swept away before you get to grade 12. Children are ruined before grade 12 in the schools today, the society in which we live. Ruined! And you can be so ruined that you can become virtually useless for God. Can you picture that? The first time a gospel preacher ever got me between the eyes, as it were, or sowed a seed that got into my conscience, I can remember it still. I was only seven and a half years age. 
And a man stood up to preach in a church that I was in there. I can remember his name. It was Mr. Outram. And he's preached on the text, all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. He says, you know what you do with filthy rags? You burn them. <laughs> Why do you burn them? He said, because they're useless. And he said to him, I don't know who I'm talking to tonight. He said, but if you're still in your sins, if you're still under the judgment of God and guilty and sinful and you've never been washed in the blood of the Lamb, I tell you, you stay that way, you'll be useless for God. And I thought, oh dear, I don't ever want to be useless for God. Didn't understand a lot, but that was the starting of God working in my soul to bring him to him, bring me to himself. Now that's exactly what you've got here in the lesson for the going on to the age of 12. Now, verses 51 and 52. What does it say there? They went, he went down with them to Nazareth and he became, and he was subject to them. You see, he learned respect for his parents because in doing that, you realise you're teaching your child to have respect for authority. Do you realise that that's the scourge, isn't it? Well, you don't have to be clever to realise it. The great scourge of the youngest, younger, whatever generation is that no one will teach them respect for authority. No one. So they haven't got any respect for authority. When you haven't got respect for authority and you take your life into your own hands, it does not really work out very well. Because you don't ever learn anything because you think you already know everything. All right? And the Lord Jesus went down there and he understood that he would be in obedience to his parents. Now, obedience is something that the child is taught and taught absolutely early. And it's something which they learn to observe. And as you grow older, it's not like it's not like you stay the same relationship, you do exactly what mum and dad says when they say it, or you have to check with them on everything that they do. It's not quite like that. But as you grow, and as you grow up, you become, they say independent, but you still honour your father and mother. That never changes. It stays with you as long as you've got a father and mother. doesn't matter what age you are. Excuse me, if you haven't honoured your father and mother, don't be surprised if your children don't honour you. Sorry, it's how it works. You know, we bewail what comes to us in all our woes, forgetting the sins of our own youth, which should humble us and make us prayerful and give us compassion and understanding. And whatever may be your past and your failures and the sins of your youth or whatever, the truth is, if you really repent of them and if you confess them and own them before God, yes, he will enable you, despite your own failures, to do what you should do and honour him in the bringing up of the next generation. That's the truth. But that must be the way by true repentance. And so you have the honouring of parents right out the window today. The obedience of children, what a joke. Speak to any school children. Do your children, do your pupils naturally respect authority? <laughs> we won't go there, but it's quite clear. See, today, what we've been taught is that it's normal for teenagers to rebel. No, this might come as a surprise to you. Now, that's a, just a, any psychologist will tell you that is a normal passage at right to you know, it's just what happens in development. You go back and look at your psychologists, all right? Go back and look at history. And you'll find out it was in the 1970s that that became the talk. Prior to that, it was never spoken of as a normal thing. It was a most undesirable thing. But there came a shift in thinking as the world slowly moved into rebellion. As the world in which I grew up, and some of you older ones grew up, and you grew up in the rebellious age, you grew up in the age of drugs, you grew up in the promiscuous society, you grew up in the day of the sexual revolution. 
You grew up in the day when we were taught to really admire the fantastic pop stars of the day whose lives, pardon me, were full of filth and drugs. You remember it. Well, mate, just careful lest you got caught up in it. Okay. And you still haven't dealt with those issues of the past when you learnt to rebel and thought it was good. It wasn't good. It was Satan beginning the process. It's 1970s as it was, late 60s, the slow march to get where we are today with this casting off of restraint, casting off of authority, indulgence of every kind, and the worship of the self, and the flagrant throwing off of the authority of God. And the Lord Jesus, in the midst of all of that, as he moved through those years, he increased in wisdom and in stature. Wisdom and in stature. It's not just knowledge. You know, they're giving the children, young people, a tremendous amount of knowledge today. All knowledge is not good. Knowledge does not necessarily give power, although all the Christians will be saying it, and all the Christian schools are saying it, knowledge gives power. Did it? Does it? Well, Adam and Eve got some knowledge, didn't they, on the day they sinned? Didn't give them any power. They suddenly realised there was an evil side to nakedness and from there it blew out of all proportions. Uh Uh-uh. There are some things you're better off not knowing because it disempowers you. All right? But bringing in in wisdom is the art of how to apply knowledge. That's wisdom. Knowing what to do with it. In other words, how to make decisions in life that are best in their outcomes for the glory of God and the blessing of others. That's the point of wisdom, the application of knowledge. You can be an academic, and you can write brilliant books, and you can do brilliant summaries, and yet mess up your own life. All right? And sometimes you know an academic's an academic, so you put them in the back room to do the research. You don't put them out on the front to apply the policies of the company. You want their information, but please don't get your hands on the tiller, or the boat might sink. But sure, tell us how this boat works. That's great. And that's the difference. He grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. And he grew in favour, it says, with God and with men. Now, don't let me just touch on this. That doesn't mean that, well, you know, everybody liked him. That's not what it's saying. He grew in favour, it says, alongside of God and men. In other words, he was moving in that life and those crucial time up to the age of 30 in fellowship with God and in fellowship with man. Loving the Lord his God, loving his neighbour as himself. And may I say this, he was not socially maladjusted. Pardon me, but you can bring your children up so that all they can do is practice their faith and do what is right when they're in a glass case, when they're in a hothouse, controlled temperatures, where the winds don't blow. And parents that do that get it stuck in their head that they mustn't allow anything adverse to happen to the child. We must only give them affirmation. And the child starts to grow big and somebody criticises them. Fancy criticising my teenager, my 20-year-old, my 30-year-old, my 40-year-old. Oh dear, no, we mustn't allow such a word to be said. What we must do is affirm, affirm, affirm. And so the poor person never learns anything. The child learns nothing. The adolescent learns nothing because they think they know everything. And we've shielded them so in bad parental ways. The Lord Jesus grew alongside of God. He moved in a real world in fellowship with God. And alongside of men, he lived a holy life where the rubber, as it were, hits the road. And it says he increased or advanced. And the word there has in it effort. It's the word that was used to describe 
pioneers going before an army, chopping trees down so that the army couldn't advance. Look at the effort. It is also used when the blacksmith, when he had to get a piece of steel and make it longer. What did he do with a piece of steel? He put it in the fire, he made it red hot, and he hammered it with a hammered it with his hammer. Terrific effort, you see. He used all that. And he moved right through in control, effort, and discipline. What a lesson for us all today as we're growing. And it was well, particularly anybody under 30, if you like, but it doesn't change. The lessons go on and on. And we're learning these things about the Lord Jesus because, you see, he is being prepared for the tremendous work that lies ahead of him. And he is already prepared here for the work that he is now doing in understanding and sympathising as our high priest. And I want to tell you, whatever age you are under 30, there's not one experience you have that he hasn't known about already. He's lived in a real world. And he's able, therefore, to succor you, to give you strength in a way that's compassionate and understanding and to be a true high priest who draws near to help you in the time of your need and can bring you back into relationship with God. And those are the truths that I just want you to take home this morning. And next time we will start at that baptism and see him move out in the mighty power of God. See him speaking the words of God. See him moving with all the authority of God. See the demons silenced before him. See the storm that is stilled upon the Sea of Galilee. See the people parting like the sea when they're going to throw him down the cliff. Jesus passed through their midst. This is the conquering Christ. This is he who has come to destroy him that's got the power of death and to deliver them who through fear of death are all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hallelujah! He sets the captive free and brings deliverance to those that are oppressed. May our hearts be moved again at the contemplation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's just pray. Father, we have prayed this morning that our eyes might be fixed upon Jesus, and we give thanks that we've opened the word of God, and we've seen his beauty written in the lines of every verse that we have read. We say thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. We give thanks for one who came as a babe in a manger, born amongst us, born of a woman, born under the law. And our God and Father lived a life of absolute perfection, giving example, giving teaching, showing us the way, moving in order that he might be able, through his work, to come and take us by the hand, guilty sinners, and through his work, present us perfect before the throne of God. Lord, we have been blessed this morning in our worship. We have been blessed in the reading of thy holy word. Bless us humbly, we ask, even as we leave and part from this place. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Ghost, the love of God, fill our hearts as we leave here this morning in that precious name. Amen.